Are you comfortable, Reagan? Yes. How old are you? Twelve. Is there someone inside you? Sometimes. Who is it? I don't know. Is it Captain Howdy? I don't know. If I ask him to tell me, will you let him answer? No. Why not? I'm afraid. If he talks to me, I think he'll leave you. Do you want him to leave you? Yes. I'm speaking to the person inside of Reagan now. If you are there, you two are hypnotized. Welcome to this percolated media Halloween special. As the three men in a retrospective podcast review all of the movies in the Exorcist saga. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Join Garrett. I haven't had a bath for three days. And Matt. Why me? As they bring back horror film scholar Mick Duffy. I wouldn't be concerned about reason, Major. He's a scholar. And they review each film, one exorcism at a time, all leading up to a review of the brand new David Gordon Green directed entry to be released this Halloween season. Does the original Exorcist deserve its title of being the scariest movie of all time? I cannot tell you it's forbidden. How will Matt and Mick react to their first time viewings of The Exorcist 2? And I hate it. I can't stand the sight of it. And why are there two versions of the fourth sequel? He will seek to poison your mind. The answer to all these questions and more... Nothing you can do could make it any worse. Coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. Pazuzu, prince of the evil spirits of the air, take me to Kokumo. The Exorcist, released December 26, 1973, because this is a Christmas movie. Budget on this was $12 million. Box office, when all was said and done, $428.2 million. And this is directed by the late, great William Friedkin. Matt, at the beginning of the year, me and you kind of, we, we kind of dabbled in horror. We've been dragging Adam through the mud that is the King retrospective as we're going through the Night Shift movies. Yes, Mick, we are doing the entire King oeuvre. Oh of adaptations me and you we have not discussed horror since we had this guy on the line and we talked texas chainsaw massacre when we started the site yeah so um again we're talking a horror franchise where the first entry is a canonical classic mm-hmm. and and the other ones are less universally adored less universally adored but matt would you agree that i mean more higher regarded than say the texas chainsaw sequels right matt uh, that bar is so low that you can't even limbo under it. Yes, me and Matt, we are going back into horror, and we are bringing our old buddy back. We've been bringing this dude on. Hell, I've been bringing him on. Me and you, Mick, did George A. Romero years ago at the we old did, place. yes. And uh, we had Mick for Texas Chainsaw. We brought him on for Nightmare on Elm Street years ago. We did Friday the 13th. And now we are bringing him on for... A set of movies, I feel like I've been saying this for every retrospective this year, but I want to go ahead and say this is a set of movies I have been wanting to cover for a while, and it was 
in the bag. Like I had the intro all set to go, and then for some reason the plug was pulled. I don't know if I was falling behind or what, but the plug was pulled on that particular retrospective, and now years later, here we are. Mick, how do you feel, sir, as we start diving into The Exorcist? Uh, I'm really sort of looking forward to this because I have I've only seen The Exorcist and Exorcist Three. Most of this is just unknown terrain for me, so uh, that'll be exciting. I he cannot wait for next week's discussion. I fucking cannot wait. Matt, right now, again, this is non-King. We are going into horror. How are you feeling as we get into The Exorcist? All right, well, let me be that guy and say I did not want to do this retrospective. Here's why. I hate whenever I am presented with movies that have been talked about, in a po- whether it's a positive connotation or have been held at gunpoint by the Internet. And you get both extremes with these first two Exorcist movies. So me as a viewer I and a podcaster, I always hate doing these kind of movies because I always feel like I have a hand tied behind my back as far as what I can potentially say that has not been uttered from the mouths of dozens of other people. Especially this movie. I talked about this on The Shining when we did the Kubrick one. We have a movie that's this level of iconic. You sort of have to come at it almost entirely from your own perspective but here it's it's a challenge because we're talking about a movie that ever since i was growing up you know i'm much older I'm, or i should say I'm, I'm younger than you guys but this was called the scariest movie ever made even as the decades had gone by when i was getting into horror so it's a hard mountain to climb but look we're not the first people to hike this mountain in fact there's hundreds of footprints that have been left behind. So when we said we're going to do this, 50th anniversary, there's a new one coming out. Yes, there are circumstances, but I, I've been wrestling with, do I want to do this? Because like Mick, I've only seen the first one and the third one. Wow, really? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, next week's movie, and then the two movies after the third one, you guys are just pretty much going to be newbies too, right? Yeah, and then yes. they're all applying to this new one too, because I, I haven't even seen the trailer for the new one. Mm. Oh. Well, um, let's... Let's talk about that. Mick, how are you feeling? I mean, this is a movie... You, sir, are older than both of us. Yes. By not that much. So this movie, highly touted, one of the most successful horror movies of all time. In fact, this was the highest grossing horror film until The Sixth Sense in 1999, which was then unseated by another movie, Matt, we're going to be covering soon, It, in 2017. So this was on top for over 25 years. Mick, how are you feeling? It's very highly touted. What we feel about it or not is to be discussed, but how are you feeling? We're going to get another new one by the same guy who brought us the Halloween sequels from the past few years. How are you feeling about that, Mick? Um, the exact polar opposite of excited. Wow. You know, it, it just seems so utterly uh, so unnecessary and so dull. It's funny because this morning um, my child's school was off. They're having staff training, so I went for like a hike uh, this afternoon with my, with, with my boy, and he was trying to tell me that he'd seen a trailer for a horror film but that it didn't look scary, and I was trying to figure out what he was, what horror film he was talking about, and that he quoted it, and he was saying, oh, it was a thing about, oh, the body and the blood, and I'm like, oh, right. I'm saying, was it the exorcist believer? And he went, yeah, I think it began with an E. And it just struck me that if you didn't know anything about the exorcist or this original movie, that trailer is, I mean, it's a bad trailer already. Yeah. But there's there's nothing... In, like, my, my, like, my son is nine. Ordinarily, I'd be alarmed if he saw a horror trailer, because I wouldn't want him to be upset. That one's so inert. He was just commenting on that it just did not look like a scary film. Wow, and talk about a bad title for a quote-unquote horror film. Exorcist Believe. Ugh, just 
Oh man, we'll we'll get as we get closer, we'll definitely talk about that. But I agree with you, Mick. This is so unnecessary. And whether it's good or not, I'm I'm hoping it's good, but I want to go ahead and say right now, this is one of my favorite films of all time. We discussed Indiana Jones earlier this year. That was my number one favorite. This is definitely in my top ten. Mick, what about you? Did you see this growing up? How early did you see this in life? I think I first saw this when I was about, I want to say, 17, maybe 16 or 17. And it wasn't easy to see because this is one of the titles that got, I'm not sure if it was actually physically swept, well, technically swept up in the uh, UK video nasties flap of the early 80s. Oh, so it was banned over there. Well, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't legally available. I think Warner Home Video had issued it at some point, but then it was quickly withdrawn. And it was from the broadcasters had sort of agreed to never show. So when I first saw this, I saw it on a uh, like second-generation VHS that a, a friend had dubbed from me because he'd borrowed a copy from a video library that no longer had it on their shelves, but they'd let him borrow the tape. And I, I remember just uh, bringing this tape home and uh, suggesting that we could all watch it to my folks. And um, here, here's a good life hack. If you're, if you're Irish and you bring home something that's technically banned... <laughs> and suggest that we all watch it because I remember my dad going isn't that banned? and I went well yes by the British Board of Film Certification <laughs> so as long as you could just frame it as well yes the British don't want us to watch this you know it, it then basically became our duty to sit uh, and watch the movie That's so I, I saw it very fuzzily uh, my first experience of this film was fuzzy. Matt, how did you see this? Now, I know from talking to you over the years, you, you went through a phase where you were watching the top 50 or so on IMDb's top 100. Was it top 100 you were watching? Top 250. I went through that entire list from 1 to 250. I, I, obviously eliminating the ones I had seen. Mm-hmm. But I, that's my goal. And this is in there somewhere. I don't exactly know what its placement is, but I know it's below The Dark Knight Rises, and that's horseshit. But, but yeah, this was something I finally saw after I had seen the parodies. Namely, Scary Movie 2. There's a whole opening with that where it's James Woods as the uh, the Max von Sydow priest. It's fucking terrible, but it's got one funny line in it. But but I, I knew this movie, going into it, had the reputation that, that precedes it. And I gotta say, even as someone who, you know, I was old enough to know what this was and... You know, it's not like I was five, but scary's not the word I would use. I would say upsetting in a good way, and it did have a substantial impact on me uh, for a lot of factors that I'm sure we'll gladly expose upon as we go throughout the show, but it wasn't a surprise, and look, th- this is not the movie where I'm going to be that guy and said, oh, this I had this hyped up for me so long, and I thought it sucked. I did not have that experience with it. I was scared that's where you were going when you started that story. No, I had that, I had that though, with the movie that I think is the next generation's equivalent of The Exorcist as far as hype and marketing. That's the Blair Witch Project. That's the successor to The Exorcist as far as everyone being like, oh my God, it's the scariest thing, and there was the, the marketing campaign really sold it. Then I saw the movie, I'm like, this is terrible. I could go outside with my camera and record myself in my tent in the back, and I'd still make a better movie than this. I, still, I hold that in my top five, actually. Maybe we'll get to that eventually. Maybe it'll be as big a fight as Man of Steel. But yeah, I have no interest in this new one, for the record. I'm tired of legacy sequels. Mm-hmm. Indiana Jones almost broke me, mm-hmm. as we talked about earlier this year. And to th- the second thing was trilogy. Whenever whenever I hear, oh, this is the first of a trilogy, my eyes start to become bloodshot as I feel 
the brain cells leave my body. Because I can tell that Halloween series that David Gordon Green did was not meant to be a trilogy in my mind. And well, I had strong reactions to all three of those movies, so I hope I'll have that experience with this new Exorcist movie. But I'm not watching the trailers. I, I don't give enough of a shit. Yep, we're going to be watching it, though. We're going to be reviewing it. That is the Halloween series that we agreed upon this year. And eventually we'll get to Halloween a few years down the line, for sure. As far as my first watching of this, you know, I have an interesting story about this, that... I went to the video store, and back when video stores existed. Remember those, Mick? <laughs> yes. And um, I wanted to see this so bad, but the only one in stock at that time was The Exorcist 3. So I saw The Exorcist 3 before I watched the first Exorcist. Now, this was probably this was probably when The Exorcist 3 was on the new release shelf. For some reason, The Exorcist wasn't in, but the new release, The Exorcist 3, was. So I took that home, I watched it, and I have feelings, which I'll get to when we talk about that movie. But I didn't see this one until probably a couple years down the line. And much like Matt, it had a huge impact on me. And I remember having a discussion with my mom about it. And my mom was saying, well, your dad has the book. I'm like, really? And I asked my dad about it, and he had a tattered-up copy of it. Like, you know how the spine gets kind of ripped? Like, you can still see the spine, but the cover is off of it? That's exactly oh, yeah. the, that's the kind of copy my dad had of this thing. And I, and I read it in about a week's time, and that also just had a huge impact on me. And, and this is just one of those movies that it was so notorious that, much like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it was built up. I had seen scenes of it in Terror in the Isles, one particular scene we'll talk about in this review. It was one of those movies that lived up to the hype for me. And so I also went to the re-release. Matt and Mick, do you guys remember when it was re-released in theaters in 2000? Yes. yes. I think I, I went to see it when it was re-released, but I can't remember if I did or not. I saw the re-release. I saw the much-talked-about-but-never-seen scene of her spider-walking down the stairs that yes. was finally revealed in that particular movie, and I, I remember really loving that, too. I like that experience. And so it's a movie that has been notorious, as Mick has hinted at <laughs> before we hit record on this thing. Yes, it does have a curse that we'll talk about, but that's my experience with this movie, and I was, just, I was really excited to finally get to this retrospective, and now we finally have a reason to get to it. A few things about this movie. It was the first horror movie to be nominated for Best Picture which pissed a lot of people off, including a director by the name of George Cooker, who, who yeah. said he would withdraw from the Academy if it ended up winning <laughs> the Academy Award for Best Picture. Well, it lost to, uh, did it lose to The Sting? I believe so, yeah. I mean, look, that's a big deal for a movie like this. Yeah, oh, get, absolutely. You know, that's a, that's a huge win in its own right. But, right, no pun intended, I'm so sorry. The, the thing is that this is one of those movies, and we'll definitely talk about this, as we delve deeper into the movie, where it's one of those magical instances of the stars aligning. The right director, mm -hmm. the right time period, the right screenwriter, the right special effects team. I compare this to something like The Thing, or even Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think Exorcist and Texas Chainsaw are very similar. You know, both look like they're shot borderline documentarian style. People thought they were real in a lot of ways, and they have this reputation for being more graphic than they actually are. Well, yes, and, I mean, it's no coincidence that after Texas Chainsaw, Friedkin was one of the people who was championing Toby Hooper. It was Friedkin's star falling after The Exorcist is also part of the reason why Hooper sort of lost a lot of opportunities that looked like he was going to get. But you can kind of see, uh, you can definitely see 
why Friedkin would really like Chainsaw, because there's a lot of similarities in terms of how they're using sound, how they're using almost documentary-style matter-of-fact filmmaking, interspersed with things that are incredibly graphic or, you know, I think extremely visceral and distressing. The Friedkin wasn't the first choice to direct this movie. Matt, you and I have discussed the number one person they wanted, Mr. Stanley Kubrick. He did not end up getting the job, but he did say later on that he really did like what Freakin did with this. Matt, how do you feel about Stanley Kubrick version of The Exorcist? I don't know, because I feel like if he did that, we would not have gotten The Shining. I feel like he wouldn't have been someone to do two horror films, because he, he wanted to be so different with the projects he took. And it's also ironic that Jack Nicholson was considered for the yep. carefulness, so there's that connection. I, I just think Freakin was the right guy. You never would have thought, walking out of the French Connection, that this would have been his next project. Because that was, you know, much like this movie, he did some stuff on the French Connection that nowadays directors would be fired for. He shot the whole chase scene without permits. It, it jeopardized the lives of all those people. The Exorcist, you know, if you read the physical stuff Linda Blair went through, uh-huh. you know, it would be huge uproars in the DGA and the general public. But it was a different time period. This is back when directors actually directed the entire movie. He didn't have studio notes. He didn't have people to answer to. And he also had, much like we talked about on Star Wars, he had the perfect person to work with, and that's William Peter Blatty. He was crazy, man. I, there were stories of him bringing guns with blanks in them to get genuine reactions from people. I'm really glad that era has passed. <laughs> I'm sure there there are film shoots where directors behave like that, and we didn't get sort of a canonical classic from it. Yeah, right? exactly. You know, it's, it's all well and good after people go, oh, well, you know, Friedkin went to these extremes, and the, the work's all there on screen. And I'm like, yes, but there are other routes to getting this. You know, if you want somebody to look surprised, you can ask them to act. And the, uh, the stuff about, like, he apparently permanently injured Linda... Blair's spine? Yes, Blair and, and Burston. They both they both have bad backs to this day because of that. Yeah, story. maybe don't injure your crew and <laughs> cast when you're making a motion picture. It's a small ask, you know. Um, I realize genius must have its price, but, you know, um, maybe maybe don't brutalize the yeah. people who are working to help you make the film. Just I, tell, I tell you, the days of him and Peckinpah, they are far behind us, but man, the stories that came out of those sets, they are fun to read from my end, but you're right. Since the Me Too movement and all of that, all of this stuff would get these people thrown in jail. They also wanted, believe it or not, they wanted John Borman, who would go on to do The Exorcist 2. But John Borman at that time said, don't make this movie, you will disintegrate the studio. He was way against this movie being made. Probably explains next week's movie, which we'll get to next week. And who do you go to? They had hired Mark Rydell, who had done The Rose and On a Golden Pond. But Blatty really wanted William Friedkin because he had seen The French Connection and really pushed for him, and the studio ended up hiring him. And, boys, that is how we get the movie that we get now. Matt, it's funny. We've been talking about Marlon Brando, seems like, all year, but they wanted Marlon Brando really hard for Father Marin in this. I mean, just no. Yeah. That's all I'll say. I would not change anybody in this cast for anyone else. Top to bottom, this is a perfectly cast movie. You know, I like to play the, the what-if game as much as anybody, but I think the way these dynamics are and the way these performances are, any change throws off the chemistry of the entire movie. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, Bonsaito um, brings that kind of sort of austere Scandinavian energy. You know, Andy's worked with Bergman, and so many of those Bergman films are about faith, about man's place in the universe, and, you know, Max Bonsaito, of course, faced off death. 
in yeah. the Seven Seals. So mm-hmm. you know, you know, he's absolutely right for the part. I can't. I actually can't imagine an American playing Father Marin. Or I think it's important that he's played by someone that's an outsider and is a borderline adventurer compared to everyone else that's in the movie. I think that's an important dynamic that's established. I'm not going to name all the names of the girls who auditioned for Reagan. I will just say two of them that kind of stuck out to me. One was Kim Basinger. She auditioned for it. Oh, God. (laughs) Another one, and I remember seeing this when I saw her documentary earlier this year, Brooke Shields. They were kind of pushing for her, but her mom said, F no, you're not going to... you're not going to go near but that script. Did let her do, um, oh my God, what's what's that Louis Mal film? Oh, Where God. she's a child prostitute? I mean, I'm just... Yeah, Blue Lagoon? No, 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 no. Um, oh. Is it called Pretty Baby? It's yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, I'll not let you do this movie, but you can do that other movie where you're creepily objectified. Exactly. Okay. Jamie Lee Curtis had the same thing. Janet Lee said, you're not auditioning. One of the girls from Willy Wonka wanted to audition. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know about this. The girl who played Violet. Oh my god, right, okay, because she, um, she was in the notorious uh, short-lived Lolita musical, uh, Lolita My Love, which only audio recordings of it survive, and it's, oh my god, like, she left, she left, she left acting after that, and, um, yeah, but again, she's too, she'd be too English, right? Matt, what's the, you know, what's the end of that story? So she auditioned and what? Her parents said the script is way too dark, but yet, but, Lily Wonka... But, but they let her do the Lolita musical. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and there's, I think there's more violence of Willy Wonka than there is of The Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that always stuck out to me about this movie, boys, and I used to have this poster in my room, was that poster of Max Bancito going up to the McNeil house for the first time. People know that was inspired by a 1954 painting called Empire of Light. It's been lost in one of my moves, but that's a poster I would still like to this day. It's always great when an actual shot from the film becomes the poster. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not overly doctored. I mean, there's some color correction. Or it's actually, they went to black and white for the poster. But this is also one of the movies why I advocate so strongly for physical media. Because if you own the Blu-ray that was released, there are so many special features on that. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's the Mark Kermode documentary. There's all the, the interviews with Friedkin and Peter Blady where they sound like they're a married couple. <laughs> they hate each other so much. But they, no, but I think they, they like each other in the way that Picard and Riker tolerate each other, but I don't think they like each I don't think they ever like... Like, you like them in the way that you like your co-workers, not your family. <laughs> I remember getting that documentary they did. They're sitting at a table, and all they're doing... And this is 30 years later. All they're doing is fighting. Yeah, but I was just going to say, it's one of the best physical media ports that they've ever done between all the special features. And one thing, though, is it's, list, it's called the Extended Director's Cut, I think is what it says. It's really the Writer's Cut. Freakin has said, you know, my version is the theatrical version. There are differences, which we'll talk about, but I think both are equally great. But this is not a Terminator 2 situation where I openly prefer the theatrical cut to the extended cut, but there's some interesting changes. So many legends associated with this film. Too many to get into. If anybody's interested, just Google The Exorcist Curse. I mean, there are crew members who have died during this. They had a $50,000 refrigeration unit to do the cold scenes. That broke down. They had to get new ones. There were fires on sets. I mean, there are so many things. I think this is true of any movie. No one talks about, you know, the curse of Dunstan checks in. (laughs) (laughs) That just spooky stuff happened on that movie set. But because it's about an orangutan in a hotel, none of of the things that went wrong in that shoot have any kind of spooky status, right? It's a, um, yeah, I think this is what happens when you make a horror film. When anything goes wrong, you kind of go, ooh. But if it was a rom-com, you'd be like, oh, yeah, right. 
camera jams. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, it's always the horror movies that are the most recognizable curses, like this Poltergeist, yep. Twilight Zone movie. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't you don't hear stuff about like the the Judd Apatow curse. That means something totally different. <laughs> yeah, the, the Judd Apatow curse is that he just won't cut. <laughs> he didn't end the scenes. I picture him like the gypsy in Stephen King's Thinner going around to editors, touching their cheek and saying, longer. <laughs> At one point, freaking banned William Peter Blatty from the set. And more lawsuits eventually led to credit this movie as William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. And there's a lot of things associated with the actresses in this movie, both on screen and off. That we'll get into as we get into the making of the movie, but boy, wait till those stories, people. All right, so we're getting some nasty strings as the main title comes up, and that leads into some Arabic chanting. And they actually filmed this opening prologue right on the outskirts of Iraq, which, boy, you couldn't do that nowadays. No, and he got Iraqi crew members, Yep, and they said, we'll do it if you can show us how to make fake blood. The mm-hmm. freak is like, oh, shit, that's that's all it takes, no problem. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but it's so funny we're reviewing this the same year, because this feels straight out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> You're not kidding, man. Crazy. I have references to that. It's funny, because at one point we're going to talk about how it was so cold on the set. This set of scenes being filmed, it was 130 degrees. And we're seeing dudes run around barefoot on these rocks. There's some digging as a boy runs and says they found some pieces. And here's when we meet priest slash archaeologist Father Marin, played by Max Ancito. Now, as a kid, I always thought this guy was old. And by the time yes. I was of age to see this movie, he actually was. And I remember telling my dad with pride that I knew the guy who played the shop owner in Eiffel Things. He was the same guy who was in The Exorcist. In this film, he is in his early 40s, and they made him up to look way older than he is. And he does a very nice job of acting like it, too, as he holds himself up while walking through these Iraqi ruins. He did say he was typecast after this because studios saw him, as I did, as an old man. But there's a reason. He is tremendous in this. And we'll talk about the other priests in this a little later. But as, as far as main protagonists, guys that Chris McNeil needs in order to save her daughter later on, I find Vancito to be great, even better than I'd remembered. Yeah, yeah, and it's the little details. I like the fact that the uh, when the boy comes in to tell him they find pieces, that he's having a conversation in, I want to say, Arabic. You know, I like the idea that he's, you know, you know he's so well-traveled yeah. and so educated that, yeah, well, of course he's going to have that. He probably speaks multiple languages. It's very prophetic that the old-age makeup they use on him looks pretty identical to how he aged 30 years down the road. No kidding. It's not pancake battery like you think of with a lot of old age makeup. It's, you know, look, it's Dick Smith who is on the Mount Rushmore of makeup effect artists. So everything should look, looks pristine given his reputation. But Cedow plays it older than he actually was because he was, what, in his 40s? Mm-hmm. I, I think when he made this. But it's not surprising. This man is one of the greatest actors to ever live. And I'm glad we're talking about him in a good movie, because the last time we reviewed him was in Never Say Never Again. Oh, jeez, that's right. Oh. And fucking Ghostbusters 2. I'm glad we're actually talking about one of his <laughs> one of his great roles. We're going to talk about another one of his bad roles later on this year, too. <laughs> yeah, no, the makeup, it's an interesting approach. Um, to borrow a quote from another archaeology movie, you know, it's, it's not the years, it's the mileage. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't look like they've applied, like Smith's applied makeup to make him look older. It's Smith has applied makeup to make it look as if he has lived more, if you know what I mean. Good point. Absolutely. So Marin kneels down and sees some arrowheads, and he's even reaching in a rock formation that's obviously in the shape of a mouth and sharp teeth, and he pulls out a little statue that's presumably in the shape of Pazuzu. 
Yeah. Marin is enjoying some cocktails and then looking over some of his findings, which are described as evil upon evil. This revelation stops the clocks. Marin is almost run over by a carriage as he walks upon another formation and is taken over by the shadows, and we have a nice look at Pazuzu as dogs are fighting in the background. My question, boys, is do we need this intro, or could we have had the film start with Reagan and her mom? I feel we kind of do just kind of get a little background, because we don't really get any background on this creature. We don't, and I think the movie does such a great job of not over-explaining. Because this is one of those movies, and and with all the Exorcist movies that have come after this, so much of them talk about the actual demonology, if you will, and they get really deep into religion. One of the challenges this movie had was, how do you make this story identifiable to people who are not religious? And I think this movie does that both by having priests not beat you over the head with a Bible about what this is, and also your main character, the witness to everything that's going to transpire is not religious herself. So I like that they're starting off in a foreign world because this is a foreign body that's going to invade an American suburban family. I like that foreshadowing as sinister as this. Yes, yes, mostly though, again, with any of these things, there's sometimes when movies do this, you get, and I don't think Friedkin's deliberately doing this, but you get the idea of presenting cultures that aren't Western as somehow in themselves being harbingers of something spooky to come. I, yeah. I don't think that's the intention here, but it's you know it's certainly not as bad as, say, the way Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead title sequence begins with Muslims praying, because mm. clearly the zombies are other countries' fault or something. You know, that linkage <laughs> something scary with the strange foreign people and the way they pray to God differently. I think if you made this movie now, there'd be accusations of that from some quarters. I don't, I don't think it's an intentional thing here. I think it's more about just foregrounding that, well, this is somewhere ancient and it's linked to, to this de- demonic force. So yeah, I'm, I'm generally fine about it, but I'm always a little bit... Um, I, I used to know this um, sound mixer mm-hmm. who told me that um, at one point he had to mix this film or TV show and he needed sounds for a Muslim call to prayer and there was nothing in the library for it so he just made one up and recorded it himself and then felt horribly guilty because he kept hearing it this thing that he'd you know he'd been under a deadline and mm-hmm. he created this you know uh, this, this thing that's probably very offensive to people who actually are you know Muslim because it's made up gibberish that he made up uh-huh. and he kept hearing it in other TV shows and films because obviously he made that recording and then it got filed away somewhere and then it got reused oh shit so I always think about this to try to kind of go, you know that call to prayer? Is, is that actually called a prayer? Is this okay? Is this, you know, did they take the time to get that right? And I'm sure they probably did, but I always think about that. That's funny. For the record, I don't think there's an ounce of xenophobia in what's being depicted, despite that connection would certainly be made with modern audiences and certainly with the way criticism is nowadays. But I love this little detail. I don't know if this was intentional or not. Friedkin frames the shot of Marin and the statue like a Sergio Leone Western. Yes. It's fantastic. Don't know if that's intentional or not, but if it is, you know, because this movie is a kind of like those Western... It's a face-off. Yeah. It's a face-off between good and evil. Mm-hmm. Like it's as it's as black and white as some of those westerns are. Um, have you watched any of that documentary about this? That's on Shudder. Uh, this documentary, Leap of Faith, and it's just Friedkin talking about the making of this movie. Throughout it, he says things like, "Well, I don't know why I did that. It was just instinctive, but I knew." And then he'll explain exactly what he did. <laughs> and it sounds like there's intentionality behind it. So um, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of that in it. 
That's funny. We meet Chris McNeil as she's writing in a notebook and hearing noises from in the attic. Now McNeil is played by another great actor in this. Someone we'll be seeing again in this new one coming up, Ellen Burstyn. Wait, she's in the new one? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, she's... Oh! Mm-hmm. It's a legacy sequel, Matt. And she very publicly didn't want to be in the new one. Yep. But she just, did she just named her price? They called her bluff. They did. But even in the sort of press around this, she wasn't doing any of the, oh, I'm so honored to be returning to this rule nonsense. She was just being like, you know, uh, I think I think she asked for a certain amount of money and also a donation to some charity that she supports. Yep. She's not doing it for her, for the love of the craft. <laughs> God's sake, the woman is 90 years old. Can't we let her live out her glory years in peace? I know. We gotta bring her back. But yeah, she's amazing in this. She has to do a lot with selling, and a lot of this has to do with the writing as well. Because her character is not religious, she tries every other form of a logical explanation to explain what's happening. It's very relatable, it's really identifiable, and I always complain in modern horror movies that characters do things irrationally. Everything she does in this movie makes complete sense. And the magic of this movie, as twisted as this is, it is the watching something that cannot be explained or really rationalized happen to people, random people, spontaneity, that you actually like. This is not a broken family in the sense that it's the the workaholic mom with the resentful daughter. It's a very suburban life that they're living, despite the fact that they're living in a house that they're basically renting because she's working. She's great in this, and I think everything about the way this movie is plotted makes complete sense. Yeah, though, I mean, I think I think she is great in this. I think the one upside to there being a new film is that people will remember that she exists. Yeah. People will watch this again and also watch, I hope, Scorsese's Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, which she's magnificent in. I guess the one interesting thing about this is, from the get-go, this family are not regular folk. Mom has an exciting job. They have servants. They have help. Yeah, um, she, and she's still caught up. And she's, you get she's annoyed by her cult of personality as a celebrity because there's that part where she's asked for an autograph. Oh, God. And she, like, she reluctantly gives it. You know, because this is not... How many Exorcist movies have we seen nowadays where it's just an ordinary family, like with a, with a housewife as the mom or some, just living a normal existence? Well, the brilliance behind this decision to make her this way is you get the feeling that she's just too busy to see what's going on with her daughter. So when things start happening, you can see her kind of blame herself, like, maybe I shouldn't be working so much because then I would probably see what's been going on here. Being an actress makes it harder for her to convince people, depending on who she's talking to. Exactly. They're like, oh, you're just making this up, or you're you're preparing for a role, exaggeration's key. So she's got stuff working against her that's embedded in her character. Yes, yes, and then um, certainly if this was being made now, you'd have the issue of an um, actress being extremely prone to believing in woo, you know? Yes. <laughs> Chris checks on her daughter, who is sleeping, and tells her that she loves her. When Chris wakes up, we see that she has quite the house of helpers, as Mick has outlined. We then cut to a movie set with Chris having issues with how scenes are being filmed, and we're even getting glimpses of Father Karras, who we'll formally be meeting here pretty soon. I like how he's just kind of in the shadows. He's in the background until we finally meet him. You wouldn't even know he's a priest, because he's a psychiatrist, basically. And he's not wearing, you know, the robes. He's wearing, like, a letterman jacket, basically. I think this is the thing that puts this movie over the edge, is having a character who... It it may sound cliche to make your priest have a crisis of faith, but I think that adds a whole new dynamic, because you have not just one priest getting involved, 
eventually you you have two priests who don't see eye to eye on how to proceed. So you have internal conflict in addition to the obvious possession that's going to be the bulk of this movie. It's amazing because you have not one, not two, but three people questioning their faith in this movie. And I agree with you, Matt. I, I think Father Karras kind of turns out to be the centerpiece of the movie. I mean, we'll talk about Jason Miller here in a bit, but just as we're kind of getting glimpses of him here, he's eventually going to be kind of the centerpiece of what Pazuzu is going after. Yes, yes, very much so. And, you know, there's one thing that I actually find really interesting about Karras that I hadn't really registered the last time I'd watched this. But, okay, so he is a Catholic priest, and, and he's also a psychologist, but his ethnicity, he's Greco-American, yeah? And I don't know if you, I don't know if you looked at the stats, but Greeks aren't into Catholicism. Uh, there are very few Catholics in Greece, because it's mostly the Greek Orthodox Church. And if you think about it, you know if you're creating a character for a, well, originally a novel, and then, you know, this screenplay, and you're going to make them a priest, and, you know, you're in 20th century America... There's going to be this very obvious temptation to go with one of the obvious ethnic backgrounds, you know, like Irish or Italian, you know, one of those uh, ethnicities you associate with Catholicism. But making them Greek kind of gives them a sort of outsider status and also, weirdly, um, sort of gives us a little bit, I'm going to say a little bit of a more sort of New Testament edge, right, Mm -hmm. if you think about if you think about sort of, you know, uh, Jesus and the apostles were heavily Hellenicized, you know, they're speaking Aramaic, which is, you know, a, a form of Greek, I understand. Uh, so it's it's kind of that. It's also a good way of dodging the cliches. You know, can you imagine how this would turn if he was, you know, if he was an Irish-American priest, he was called Father O'Flaherty, we'd already be having a hard time treating it seriously, right? Yeah. On the outsider dynamic that he's employed at Georgetown, which I believe is the oldest higher education college for Catholics in the U.S. So he's also now having to deal with, you know, the lineage of that. Chris finishes her workday, and instead of taking a ride home, she decides to walk. And it is here when we are hearing Michael Fields' tubular bells for the very first time in the film. Now, the story how this came about is actually rather funny. Freakin' had originally hired Psycho's Bernard Herrmann to score this film. He was quite excited to do so. He loved that Psycho score. He loved Psycho. It was one of his favorite movies. But their first meeting didn't go very well. And Herman saw a rough cut of the film and said, there's no way I can make this shit good. Of course, by this time, Herman was an older and quite cankerous man. And so that ended poorly. He then brought in the dude who did the original Mission Impossible TV show, whose theme is one of the most recognizable themes of all time, but while scoring a particular scene, Freakin walked in on the session and said it was the worst film music he'd ever heard and even threw the recording out the window and fired that composer on the spot. <laughs> you guys are right, man. There is no director like Freakin nowadays. <laughs> so funny that the, the most iconic piece of music from this movie what people associate as the exorcist theme is not played during a particularly scary scene. It's just her walking her down. Her walking, the yeah. He had seen the cover of Oldfield's Tubular Bells, a record I actually own. So I have this exact cover of this horn being twisted around. And he put it on, and he decided right then and there to use it in the film. And oh boy, you're right, Matt. It wasn't made for this film, but it is effective. This is a great example of a director using what he has that still sounds chilling to this day. Again, like you said, it wasn't meant to be. Yep, and I'm putting five bucks that there's going to be some terrible, like, synthesized version of it in this new one. Fuck off. God. It's funny, because you're talking about Kubrick and The Shining. Yeah. And there's one thing else that, you know, it's a, um, Jubler Bells isn't the only piece of pre-existing music he uses in this. He uses a lot of pieces by the atonal composer Penderecki, 
who um, whose music also ends up in The Shining. I was going to say, I think, Matt, you and I talked about that when we did The Shining podcast. There's instances where you can hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's even funnier for me because a lot of these music cues were used in, like, old 1960s episodes of Doctor Who. So it's a... Um, That's funny. You know, uh, I, I just like the idea that sort of a uh, various budget-strapped people, as well as, like, A-list directors, have yeah. just reached for Pandariki when they need something spooky and off. Well, Friedkin uses about 17 minutes of music in this, in this two-hour film. So he is really letting the drama speak for itself and not using the score, as Matt would say, to manipulate you. Yeah, well, I'm glad there's not a whole lot of Same. music because it adds, it adds to the documentarian style that Friedkin comes from, and Blatty really wanted to create this fly-on-the-wall type of perspective for the viewer. So adding music, I think, would have... Or excessive music, I should say, would have made this feel less authentic. So another great decision. And, you know, that's another thing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre... Yep. didn't really utilize. It's why The Exorcist is like the prestige version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where people are like, oh, that, that garbage, you know, that, that trash versus Exorcist, which was, for all its controversy, one of the most acclaimed movies of a decade full of acclaimed movies. And this movie, we didn't even talk about it in the beginning, but this movie was notorious. I mean, if you want to talk about a movie I wish I was around for when the release was out, I mean, supposedly, now this could be legend, this could be, I, I don't know exactly what's real, what's not, but supposedly people were fainting in screenings, people were being carted out in ambulances, uh, an opening screening of this, there was so much vomit in the toilets that they had to call a plumber. There's things like that that are so, pieces of legend that, God, I wish I was around for that. Mick, do you remember hearing all those stories? Um, well, here's the thing. Because this film wasn't available on home video in Ireland or the UK, it meant that uh, in larger cities, you know, there'd be many weekends during the year where it would play kind of brief engagements, again, theatrically. So this was a movie where I kind of hear that people had seen it in the cinema. When I was a kid, I'd hear that maybe somebody older who'd already gone off to university had seen it at the weekend because it'd been screening in Belfast or in Dublin. So I did hear some stories and people telling me how scary it was. And I think there is a, um, there was, I know, someone a couple of years ago did basically a thesis on its screenings in Belfast, mm -hmm. trying to find out whether or not the stories about audiences fainting and so forth were actually true. So I know, I know people have tried to research this. Um, I have not read that thesis, though. <laughs> Chris is walking home amongst a whole bunch of kids and nuns and even Father Karras, again, just hovering over this film's opening moments. And Chris receives an invitation to the White House. And this is when we formally meet Reagan, played by the lovely Linda Blair, a woman I have had the pleasure of meeting twice. And, man, she could not have been nicer both times. Is she super tiny? She looks Oh, she is, tiny. man. I'm 6'5", and I think she's even taller. I think she's shorter than my fiancé, who is like five foot. <laughs> she is tiny, but gosh, she's sweet as it can be. She is really the first time I can remember a kid taking over a horror film. And you talk about a huge task. Matt, you talked about Ellen Burstyn earlier, but this girl has to play a loving daughter, an evil spirit, and a suffering child all at the same time. And man, is she great. Another wonderful performance that she will never match again the rest of her career. This got her an Oscar nomination, and boy, did she deserve it. Uh, yeah, no, no, no arguments here. It's a, it's, a, it's a very good performance and probably a really difficult one. Yeah, you know, to just, 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 you know, both tactically and also, I suppose, uh, emotionally playing this role and I am being in the presence of a maniac who's directing. Matt. I hope she's getting lots of residual checks from this. Oh, she most certainly has. She lives pretty deep, pretty well. 
Oh, yeah, between this and uh, repossessed money. Oh, jeez. she's doing just fine. She was also one of the actresses who went from, you know, a, a child star to not a star star, but she became like a sex symbol. Yeah, I mean, With, exactly. Like, savage, savage Streets. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and stuff like that. But, yeah, I mean, Evil Kids was not new in movies necessarily. Because you had Village of the Damned and you had the Bad Seed, but those kids were just like born evil. This is something totally different, where it's someone who's good and earnest that's taken over by some other kind of force. So they were pushing boundaries on that, and yeah, it's this is the I guess the female equivalent of Haley Joel Osment in the Sixth Sense for this genre. I'm sure she wishes she wishes that she didn't do the sequel, but. All in all, you know, this is everything it's it's hyped up to be. I think the last last thing I saw her in was and this is gonna be a really really obscure she she was in a documentary Cursed Films. I think that's the shutter documentary Mike was Nick was talking about. Oh, that's a different series where there is a there is literally a feature length documentary about the Exorcist, but the Shudder's Cursed Films did do an episode on this as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I watched and yeah, it's you know, it's amazing this movie came out the way it did get... You know, it's funny how so many iconic movies come out of shit circumstances. You know, stuff like The Godfather, Apocalypse Now... Jaws. Uh, you know, Jaws. It's just... Dunson checks that, in. Because <laughs> back then, you had to think on your feet, and it's not like directors had the giant support groups they have now. Mm-hmm. They were true mavericks. And with movies like this, where studios were not even confident that they wanted to make it in the first place, kudos to everybody for, for getting this done and not shing their pants in the face of adversity. And Linda Blair went through some trauma after this movie was out. She did have a little bit of a drug habit later on in life. I think at a time there was a time when she really resented this film. I think now she's embraced it, and uh, she still does cons to this day. And like I said, the couple times I saw her at them, they, she was so nice. So she seems to have taken it in stride, but there was a time, I'm sure, you know, and she was even with Rick Springfield for a bit, and my God, that must have been traumatizing in and of itself. We then meet Father Karras, played by Jason Patrick's dad, Jason Miller. Now, this is another character who has a huge arc and another actor who truly came to play. Here he's being asked for help by a homeless guy claiming to be an older altar boy. Another actor. Matt, you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that you would not recast anybody. Jason Miller's another one. Like, he comes in, I think they saw him in a play, and they went for it, and this is a movie that does not have a star in it, really. And they took a chance with this guy, and boy, does he really come through. Another one that just blew me away when I watched it this time. This was his first movie. Yeah. I think next to Regan, he's the essential part B of this movie. And yeah, I think he's great. It's funny that he also, you know, the uh, the other movie that William Peter Blighty is known for, other than the Exorcist movie that he directed, was Night Configuration. Which, you know, I think that's a movie, if we ever, when we get the Patreon up and running, that'd be a good tie-in for this. Yeah, he didn't make a whole lot of movies, but he left an impression in everything he did. I guarantee you they're going to use archival footage of him in this new one. Oh. Uh, what, you know, if we get that deep, if we get that deep fake Grand Moff Tarkin shit, I am walking out of the theater. Uh, I am telling you this, telling you this right now. I think he's great, and he was married to. I don't know if people know this. He was married to Jackie Gleason's daughter. Uh, so, wow. like, Jason Patrick is the son of two legends, and he still can't act his way out of a paperback. <laughs> Poor Jason Patrick. I love the Lost Boys, but he's not yeah, the reason why. Wow. No, this I did not know any of this. <laughs> Nick's getting an education today. <laughs> well, no, I knew I knew he was the father of Jason Patrick and also Joshua Miller. And it's it's weird because both of his children were in vampire movies in 1987, but not the same vampire movie. <laughs> 
that 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 seems weird to me. But um, he's he's really great in this film, and he's you know he's doing that great thing where he doesn't seem to be doing much. He's really underplaying everything. Yeah, and it really helps. You can imagine the terrible alternate universe version of this movie where they got a star, mm-hmm. and the star decided to just really overemphasize everything. Yeah, like if you got Nicholson, this would have oh, been a God. different kind of performance. This was sort of the, the Lee Strasberg motto or style of naturalism. You know, because I do think at this time, like, maybe... I'm spitballing here because I, I think he's irreplaceable, but, like, young Robert De Niro could have pulled this off, certainly. But I, I think the fact that he feels just like a regular guy... And he's not recognizable, you know, because, like, I remember Warren Beatty was rumored for this at one point. Mm -hmm. That would have been as distracting as, you know, every time I see a can of split pea soup in my grocery store. Every every decision that's made in this movie was calculated and ultimately, I think, was proven right as, as the years have gone on. Karras goes home in the smallest apartment I've ever seen, and he's looking at old photos as he finds and speaks to his mom, telling her to stay off the stairs, and she's about as stubborn as I remember my grandparents being when I was around them around this time. We Those see stairs, I mean... Yeah. Like, it's on my bucket list of things to go see. Mm. Oh, God. Yeah. Sam. See, I've, I've got this weird... See, you know, when I, was, uh, when I was watching this last night... And think about Karis being, you know, Greco-American, and you know, you know, you know that apartment. There's like the pictures of him when he's younger in boxing, yep. and the selling pictures yeah, yeah. and everything. Mm-hmm. There are no Catholic stuff. In Interesting. The walls. Yeah. And like I've got, I was developing this head canon theory, and I was watching it because you cut that line later on, talking about when he became a Jesuit. And I'm wondering, was his mom Orthodox, pre-Orthodox? Did he convert to Catholicism at some point? We see Reagan and Chris. They're messing with a Ouija board that Reagan found in the closet. And my God, when will characters learn never to mess with mess with these damn things? Oh, this never goes right when you fuck with a Ouija board. Yeah, this is the only instance where I'm like, all right, you have to take some semblance of culpability for what's about to happen. Because anytime you see a Ouija board in a movie, that's like putting on a red shirt in a Star Trek movie. (laughs) Where it's like no good is going to come from this. Reagan says Captain Howdy answers the questions as Reagan asks them, including an unflattering response to whether Chris is pretty or not. Chris tucks Reagan in as Reagan tells Chris that she can bring Burke to the party if she wants to, and we assume this is what Captain Howdy is feeding her. Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, that, that whole scene sort of... Uh, I always find that whole scene so disturbing again because it's like, clearly there's something wrong here with his Ouija board. Yeah. And your daughter's saying she's talking to an, ima- an imaginary person. This whole thing is like, you exactly. know... We also hear about Reagan's dad for the first time, and Chris puts her to bed. We cut to Father Karras having a few drinks and expressing guilt about leaving his mother alone. He asks for a reassignment, which he isn't granted. A big revelation is made here, though, and one that is tested by the demon as the film goes on. Karras says that he thinks he's lost his faith. So maybe that has something to do with the fact that there's no things of Catholicism in his apartment. Yeah. We go back to Chris, who is having a hard time getting a hold of Reagan's dad, a conversation Reagan is overhearing herself. Chris is woken up by a phone call as she sees Reagan laying next to her, and she says that she couldn't get to sleep because her bed was shaking. This and another noise from the attic causes Chris to investigate and again not find anything, except Carl, who comes to say that there aren't any rats in the house. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's checking yeah. at, what, 2 in the morning? <laughs> yeah. They all scatter because it's... Yeah. We see that a statue in the church has been defaced and that Father Karras' mom is in the hospital. This was disturbing to see. Yeah. Oof. Oh, the the Mary statue? Yeah. Yeah, well, this starts a trend with, you know, because this and the third one do a lot with the desecration of Catholic 
symbols. Everything in this movie, from statues to, to a crucifix, you know, the, the devil. Pazuzu is not one for the uh, for interior design, based <laughs> on how he's based on how he's acting. But again, this movie, I think it works because, yes, by its very nature, it is embedded in Catholicism. But I don't think that you have to have that mentality for this movie to affect you in in the sense that something is is wrong because you can insert any of your own belief system. And if you saw symbols of your faith or your belief being destroyed with no logical explanation, I'm sure it would mess with you too. Karis makes his way through some patients and he tells his mom that he's going to take her home. He's also upset about where she is and takes it out on a heavy bag in the gym. We cut to a party where Reagan is roaming around. And what Friedkin does so well here, boys, I think, is establish a mood. We're seeing her roam around this party. Her mom's throwing this party. Like, this is really something that he does so well where we have something going on and then he's going to make it come to a grinding halt. Yeah, it's a very 70s party. It is. I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously like, goes to the territory that's been a film made in the 70s, but just how 70s are all the people at that party? It's, a, uh... <laughs> it's also a representation for the entire movie where it is something that is just a mundane part of life that is interrupted by something supernatural. Yep. Yes. Or something you something you can't explain. And you can tell this is the 70s and not made in the 80s, because if it was the 80s, we would see a ton of nose candy at this party. Or it's the 70s, I, I assume we've just missed the fondue. <laughs> And Qualudes, you know, just uh, that, 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 that's what it was 70s, right? You know. Chris inquires about Damon Karras, and she learns that he's the psychiatric counselor. And this is also when we learn that his mom is now dead. Burke is attacked at the party and then asks, what's for dessert? As Chris once again checks on Reagan, who is now sleeping. So she was roaming around the party. Now she's sleeping. So we think she's out of it, right? But Burke acts like a fool, just roaming around this party, being drunk. As Chris puts him to bed as well, a musical number is interrupted by our first sign that Reagan isn't doing so well as she makes her way down the stairs and pees on the floor, saying that you're going to die up there. I remember seeing this as a kid. It freaked me out. This was the first scene where I was like, what the fuck? I, I freaked out at this scene. It's unsettling because at, at the same time, this is something that kids do. She's at an age where she should be past this. But we don't know her full mental state, so this, you know, she might be a bed, uh, chronic bedwetter, or could mean something totally as a representation of potential womanhood things to come. But but it's just, it, I'm gonna say that's a lot in this movie. It's gross. It is. Uh, but but it's also the first sign things are going wrong. But at the same time, if you're the mom, it's perfectly explainable as an anomaly. Yeah, I'm only can we believe in Rick Springfield. <laughs> I just, I just feel like he would be responsible somehow for this. Chris puts her in the tub and then tucks her in again. Reagan then asks what's wrong with her. And Chris responds with, it's just nerves, like the doctor said. She starts walking down the stairs and we get one of the film's big scenes, that of Reagan's bed shaking. The screaming really makes you feel this scene, man. When they're screaming at each other, oh my God. Like This is when we're like, what the fuck is going on here? And I believe this is when uh, Linda Blair hurt her back. Yeah, yeah, apparently so, yes. And of course, Freakin's going to keep those shots in the movie. The ones of him in agony are the ones he's going to keep. Art, you know. Yeah. (laughs) We cut to Karis feeling guilt about not being there for his mother. And this is guilt that Pazuzu will prey on later on, so stay tuned for that. He dreams of a medallion falling as his mom ascends the stairs and then calls out for her as he runs toward her. 
Well, it's not just any medallion, it's the St. Joseph's medallion that Marin finds on the dig. Yeah, it was the one found in the dig. Yeah, I couldn't tell exactly what that was. So say what that is again. It's a St. Joseph's. It's a, like it's a. It's got like a, an image of St. Joseph on it. Okay. And right. some writing on it. Yeah, I imagine that has some significance as well. I'm not quite sure. It's an interesting religious artifact, and the fact that he's having a dream about it in advance is interesting because Murren himself has already had kind of a premonition that this is all going to happen. And Freakin does something really interesting in these scenes, too, where I'm not sure if it's happened yet, because I was taking a lot of notes while I was watching this, but there's a lot of hallucinatic energy of a face that just kind of flashes as he's having these dreams, and it's just so crazy how Freakin's really outlining this. It is. That's the one change in the director's cut that I'm not crazy about is those those flashing Pazuzu images. That feels like George Lucasifying a movie <laughs> that's already perfect, because... This movie is very good. It's one of the greatest examples of, and we'll talk about this with the third one as well, what you don't see is sometimes more horrifying than what you actually see. Everything that needs to be conveyed is shown to you, and the more times you see the devil, or Pazuzu, whatever you want to call it, the less scary I think they are. Because every all the scares is represented through what's happening to Ray. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the one time where I feel like it feels like they're trying too hard to add something. Like, this is something that, you know, the, the flashy images of a demon, that's something that works in something like Twin Peaks, but not here. And that's something we talked about when we did the Freddy series those years ago, is the less you see of him, the better it is, the more scary it is, because of the fright that he causes. And we're seeing that same thing here, and you're right, I think we're kind of showing too much of it in that director's cut. All of this is happening as Reagan tells doctors that she doesn't want the medicine, and then she calls them fucking bastards, which I'm sure in 1973, seeing a kid utter that phrase wasn't exactly (laughs) common. Hospital stuff is the most disturbing part of the movie, if you ask me. This is starting something. Again, this movie is such a great dichotomy of sometimes the stuff that you can't explain. Medical science is something we put our faith in as people. Sometimes that can be more horrifying than than the unexplainable supernatural. I thought you were talking about the doctor lighting up the cigarette right there in the hospital. Oh, yeah, that shit wouldn't fly now. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, if, if... If the McNeils were regular poor people, this hospital stuff wouldn't be happening, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. She'd, yeah, she'd have to wait till her head was spinning around, and then she'd try and take her to an ER <laughs> once it got to that stage. <laughs> the doctor tells Chris that Reagan has a disturbance in the chemical electrical activity of the brain, and this has been known to cause hallucinations and muscle spasms associated with things like Reagan's bed being shaken. But Chris says that's not right, as the entire bed was shaking with her on it. And the doctor says that it's her brain that's the problem, and her personality change can be due to the disturbance in the temporal lobe. Yeah, this is when, like, it's just like, okay, they're trying so hard to give a medical reason here. But what I find interesting about this, and what I didn't associate with it, is before the devil takes hold of her, medical science does it for her. Yeah, it's the devil is manipulating people before he ever makes it clear that it's me, Austin. This is the devil, or evil is a manipulator, and it takes advantage of people's earnestness and their faith in science. Because a lot of times, look, the reality is for certain people, medical science and religion offer the same thing. You know, last rites are still a common part of hospice care. They're very much connected, and it's on display here. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the... um I think it uses these hospital sequences, I think are definitely tying into the fear that something's wrong with your child. 
you know, which I, I thought I would find more frightening this time around, now that I'm a parent, and I somehow didn't. Really? It didn't, yeah, no, the, um, the, uh, the Karis losing his mother hit me much harder this time. Interesting. Yeah. We but, then see Reagan being wheeled in and strapped down. Weird fact, one of the doctors here turned out to be the serial killer that freaking based the Al Pacino movie Cruising on. Which, yeah, yeah. Google that, kids. It's an interesting story. Yeah, oh, yeah, by the way, everyone, watch Cruising knowing oh. nothing because I want to know what your reaction is when you see it. We have oh. to cover that eventually. we got to do the Al Pacino movies. Got to cover that because I, I agree with you. That would be something to behold. Now, to kind of, to kind of piggyback on what... Mick was saying earlier, I, I got to kind of disagree with you, Mick. I could not imagine being a mom and having to watch your daughter have to go through this. And Burston is really playing it perfectly as she's just, we're seeing this girl just be, this innocent girl that we just saw playing games with her mom just 10 minutes ago, just be strapped down like this. Mick, you weren't feeling this at all? No, no, I was, but I wasn't thinking, I wasn't finding more disturbing than I had last time. Gotcha. You know, I thought, I thought it would have a special resonance for me now, and it didn't have any additional resonance. The doctor says that there are no signs of a temporal low problem. They go to Reagan's room, and she's being rocked back and forth by a demon as she's screaming. It's burning and screaming to make it stop as the eyes go white, and we are seeing the possession of full form. This is the gradual progression, and once we see it, man, is it impactful. This was the scene that, when I was a kid and I watched this for the first time, I had to turn this off. This is the scene that really freaked me out. Just seeing her lean back and her eyes turn white like that and hearing that growl come from her. It scared the fuck out of me as a kid, and God, it's impactful now. This movie operates in the way that, like, the best body horror does, where it starts out very small, and it escalates more and more to the point of physical repulsion. He's establishing the the degradation like a roller coaster. Um, And I think that's also why the movie has the staying power. If you just hard cut to her being fully possessed, and so many modern horror movies do this now where they're possessed, and that's when shit starts flying and mm-hmm. the score gets cranked up to 11. It gets very loud. I sound like an old man saying that, but it's the truth. This is the way to do it. I think the slow build in this movie operating as a character drama first and the, the corruption of innocence, I think that's why this movie got the praise it did, is that it's something else entirely and then shifts into being a balls-to-the-wall horror movie. And the representation of... Innocence being taken, I think, is at the heart of almost every horror story. You know, that goes back to Frankenstein. I think that's one of the, no pun intended, universal tropes that makes horror work as well as it does. When it's done correctly. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing here as well is the idea that the, um, the universe is not what you supposed it was. Yep. You know, that it's just, and in, in, in evil exists. Yeah. That there is no, you can be the biggest optimist in the world and you can live your life as ideally as possible in the eyes of your God, but there are just some things that you cannot erase. Evil is as much a part of nature as inherent goodness is. Reagan's throat is inflated as she says that the sow is now mine. The doctors come out, and Chris has had enough. The doctor talks about a 90-pound woman moving a truck to save her child, and Chris just asks what the hell is going on. But she has been lied to enough about the temporal lobe, and she just wants answers. And this is why those scenes earlier are important to me, boys. We are feeling her pain of a mother just witnessing the possession of her daughter. And Matt, you hit it on the head when we started this. She is doing everything possible because she does not believe that she could be possessed, right? It's not even crossing her mind. It's almost like she's in, she's in denial. Mm-hmm. Uh, as she should be, I mean, because she's not a religious character. And but. also, she's a character in a universe where the film The Exorcist doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, she doesn't have the blueprint. On yeah. 
it's like movies before Poltergeist, where it's you know, or the haunting with the with the rules of a haunted house. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have the textbook yet that someone left behind. <laughs> Chris doesn't want to give her daughter another spinal, but the doctors tell her that they want to eliminate all possibilities. But the X-rays are once again normal. Chris says there are no drugs in her house, so that eliminates that. And the doctor says that he thinks it's time they start looking for a psychiatrist. The phone's ringing as the lights in her house flicker. Chris goes upstairs and sees that Reagan's window is open, and she once again tucks her in. We find out that Burke was left alone up in her room, and he was thrown out the window. Matt, should we have seen this scene, or are we supposed to just imagine what happened up there? I think that's exactly the point. This movie's about questioning belief. For all we know, he could have gotten drunk and just fell out the window. I think that's a very... That's a smart decision by Freakin. Because nowadays, in modern movies, you would see this. There would be a 10-minute sequence of him going up the stairs. There would have been a jump scare, a loud bang, and we would have gotten thrown out the window like Jason Voorhees. Mick, have you read this book? I did read the book, yes. I can't remember if this scene actually happens in the book or if we just hear about it afterwards. Yeah, I can't remember either. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm grateful for anything in this universe that looks like it's going to derail the production of that film that she's starring in. Because it looks bad. We then cut to a shrink session with Reagan, and this scene was prominent in the film I watched, Terror in the Isles, before I even watched the movie. We learn that Reagan is 12 years old, and there is someone she doesn't know who lives inside of her. The shrink asks the person who is inside Reagan to come forward. As a book falls off the shelf, she then grabs the shrink by the balls and takes him down. And this was one of the scenes that a woman by the name of Eileen Dietz, Nick, am I pronouncing that right? Dietz? Dietz? I'm not sure exactly, but this was a, she was a stunt woman who did all these scenes with these shrinks and did a lot of the slapping of Chris and things like that, of that nature. And she did not get a credit. It's weird because between her and Mercedes McCambridge, who's a woman who won an Oscar, believe it or not, she did a lot of the possessive yes. sound effects. She gets, she gets credited in the cast. She is credited, but she initially, now according to Friedkin, she initially said, I don't want credit for doing this movie. But once it came out and was a hit, she wanted credit. <laughs> and, it's funny how that happens. Yeah, interesting how that happens, right? Now, Friedkin tells stories of him strapping this woman down, and basically she was an alcoholic, and he gave her alcohol and everything else to get her voice as deep as it was. But man, it's effective. And between that and all the animal sound effects and things they use, these scenes are absolutely impactful. Yes. So they're also, um, every time Reagan attacks someone... It's proto evil dead. Yeah, because we're seeing the POV, right? Yeah. Yeah, from this one we're just seeing the, the camera um like strapped to the guy who's getting hit and yeah. he falls to the ground and I'm like, this is just just push this up a little bit more and you have, you know, um you have all of the fight scenes in Evil Dead. Well it's also if you've seen the early makeup tests, she looks like one of the deadites before before they fine tuned it. Matt, do you like the sound in this film? Oh god, the sound design in this movie is impeccable. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, it's so good. You know, and I love you know, the modulation of the voice. I also love that there's there there's different devils inside of her, for all we know, mm-hmm. arguing with each other. So it's doing everything possible to keep throwing everyone off. And you're never 100% sure. It's, it's good, unreliable. There's a mystery to it as far as, like, how severe is this? And it just keeps getting worse and worse. We cut to Father Karras running on a track. He runs into William Kinderman, a cop. He says that Burke has died and asks what he knows about witchcraft. He then says that Burke was thrown out a window with his head turned completely around, which was unlikely to have happened on the fall. So we're introducing this cop. Now, we're going to see this cop again later, but 
I don't know. Was was this character needed? He's a much bigger character in the novel. Much bigger. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah. It, um, I I don't know if he's needed at all in the film. I mean, I guess I guess logically we have to assume that the uh, police would have to investigate this weird death. I think you know now if this is in a modern film, this would be handled in just one very quick scene. It would be like a um, oh, did you see Megan? Yeah. It would be like any of the times where cops turn up in that movie and just hand wave away a mysterious death. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that. Matt, what about you? Do you think this this character is needed? I would say he's more functional than he is fleshed out. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but again, I like that this is another component of trying to find answers, a procedural style, detective work, basically. It's good, but, you know, it's hard for me to talk about this movie so much, given my feelings on the third one. So I, I kind of have to bite my lip. Well, wait till you see next week. That might change everything. We're seeing footage of Reagan being possessed as Chris is once again getting lied to by who she calls the 88th Doctor. And he tells her that she needs to go to a psychiatric ward. She's been given the thought that there is one other possibility. As Chris is asked if she or Reagan believe in religion and the ritual of an exorcism, which the Doctor calls a force of suggestion. They take Reagan home, all bundled up, as Kellerman examines those oh-so-famous steps. And Matt, I'm right with you. I want to visit these steps so fucking bad. Apparently there's a plaque on them. I have a few friends who have visited them. God, I'm with you, dude. Freakin' has even said, you know, he even said before he died, he said, you know, I'm sad that this did not win the Best Picture Award, but not many people can say they are on a plaque. Man, these steps are just pretty iconic. Yeah, they are. I wouldn't go up them. I would no, certainly, <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> because of the freaking, you know, they're so narrow. And I wear a size 13 shoe, so I don't trust my feet going up there. I'll be happy just to watch. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I'd be doing a Joker dance down those steps. <laughs> I'd save that for the ones in New York. <laughs> Chris finds a cross as Kellerman finds what looks like a mini statue. Chris asks her entire entourage if they put the cross in Reagan's bedroom, and all of them deny it. Mick, who put this cross in there? I don't know. I have no idea. We are it's never a, told. Is it Kellerman? No idea. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's never explained, which is a, uh, mm. which is good. I like it when these things just aren't explained. I guess, but I don't know. Matt, would you like to have known this? I, I kind of would have liked to have known this. So in the book, it's hinted at Regan putting it there between possessions, but apparently, like, Blatty said in an interview that Carl put the crucifix under the pillow because he's Catholic. Right. Kellerman then asks if Burke was in Reagan's bedroom, but Chris denies it, saying Reagan was heavily sedated. Kellerman is putting together that Burke didn't jump out the window. He was killed and then pushed. And while filming this, like, Freakin does an interesting push and pull in this scene. And, you know, we haven't, we've talked a lot about Freakin and, you know, how crazy he is and he was and whatnot. But you gotta say, he did a hell of a job directing this. Oh, God, yeah. Like, this is, it's funny that this movie both does the less is more style of directing, but also when he has to be showy, it's as polished as it could have been. I don't think there's a, there's a misstep in this. But also, I think it's just the fact that him and Blatty, great relationships often, stem out of conflict with one another. And I think that apprehension pushed Friedkin to make this the best movie he could. Because the last thing you want to hear is the writer say, oh, I could have done a better job behind the camera. Yeah, yeah, no, I think they've got that nice creative tension there, and it's definitely, it comes through the final product, and it's got an interesting vibe. It's not like any of Friedkin's other films, even if we are for the fact that, you know, Friedkin doesn't do many other horror movies. This one has a weird energy. 
Kellerman ends this scene the most awkward way possible, and Matt, you mentioned this earlier. He asked Chris for an autograph. Uh, just, just that whole sequence, just... Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and by the way, Frieda doesn't cut from that. He lingers on as she signs it, and he goes, oh, it's not for my daughter, it's actually for me. I was like, oh, God. It's, 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 he's almost Rupert Pumpkin at that moment. <laughs> Yeah, he's one mustache away from being a pumpkin. After Kellerman leaves, there's another crash, and things are flying everywhere as Reagan masturbates with a cross and tells her mom to lick her as she slaps her down and moves dressers around the room. My God, I mean, this movie, it is crazy that this got away with an R rating. I could not believe when I saw this as a kid, and I'm pretty sure audiences in 1973 were the exact same way. This is crude, this is crazy. It's all Friedkin. Well, they were fighting, like, the studio was pushing for an X rating. And apparently, the MPAA accommodated Warner Brothers by giving them an R rating just because of all the production hell this movie went through. Yeah. And they also heard how much money it was making, and they're like, oh, yeah, we'll make it R. Didn't stop cities from trying to ban it, though. But, yeah, this is... Look, religion is always a touchy subject in movies to begin with, but to have someone masturbate with a crucifix, I mean, there, there would be... That director would be sought after by every clergyman possible. It's it's risque. It's maybe the most controversial thing in the movie. Among everything else, I think just that image and, you know, the implication. I mean, you see it, but it's not overly graphic. But that slap would make Will Smith blush. You're right. You don't see it go in, but you see the result of it. The implication is also that the scratches on her face are from that crucifix. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's such a transgressive moment. You know, and again, it's, yeah, it's impossible to imagine, it's, it's impossible to imagine that happening in a studio film in 2023. Mm, I don't know. I, I look at that and I'm thinking, would Kubrick have done that? I don't know. Oh. I think he would have. I mean, have you seen Lolita? Not in a very, very long time, thankfully. And don't you watch it. Yeah. Father Kara stops a not so eager to talk Chris. And he reveals that he went through medical school. He also says that Father Dyer is a friend of his, and she asks him about getting an exorcism for her daughter. He tells her that there is no such thing as an exorcism in a day of mental health, but Chris reveals it's her daughter who needs one, and he tells her it could make things even worse. And again, I'm going to compliment Ellen Burstyn here. Fuck, is her performance brilliant here. Like, she is just feeling the pain here. Yep. Yeah, and, and you really get the desperation out of her performance mm -hmm. from this point on, which I think is also, like, she, this is kind of, like, that crucifix scene is sort of her breaking point. Yep. Where it's like, all right, I can't, I need to go outside my belief circle to save my daughter. Karis is giving excuses that he needs permission, but we can tell that Chris is desperate, so Karis comes along. He walks into Reagan's room, and she once again looks even worse. This is when we have to talk about the unbelievably great job that Dick Smith did on the makeup in this film. Matt, you already mentioned the old age makeup he did on Max Vancito. But my God, what about this deterioration of Reagan? Yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's a terrific, terrific job. And it's, um, yeah, it's interesting, too, because she, uh, Linda Blair looks sort of apple pie and wholesome. Yeah. At the start of this film, it's kind of a contrast and... Um, you know her performance is great, but it's it's a great piece of casting visually because she uh, she looks so wholesome, but but in a very believable kind of way. I'm thinking that you know um, of actresses who would have been the same age at that same time. You know if they'd gotten Jan from the Brady Bunch. Jesus. <laughs> I you know I can't I can't see this having worked as well. <laughs> it's interesting. I'm trying to think 
Aren't there a lot of appliances on her face? Because she has quite a sort of round, full, sort of apple-cheeked face. Well, they do. He has he has a lot of the a lot of the pumps that they put back then where they inflate it. You know, and Rick Baker was also on his crew, by the way. He, I think he was an intern on this crew or something. Like, this was one of his very first gigs. But I, I believe they put a lot of, like, a lot of air bubbles in there. I, you could definitely tell that, God, it's just a lot of work went into this. And to turn Linda Blair into this beast must have taken so much time and had to be a chore given the director they had to please. Oh, God, yeah. Like, this is, and it's awesome. It, it's a makeup job, but it's actually not as complex as you think it is. But at the time, it was a huge challenge because you have to worry about continuity between takes. You have to worry about, you know, resetting if something goes wrong. There's a lot of technical work that goes into something that you think is relatively simple. It's just, you know, it's makeup and and prosthetics, but it could have thrown off the entire movie if done wrong. All it takes is the DP forgetting to put in the green contact lenses to throw everything off. Yeah, and those things hurt, too. Not to mention, when they're filming in this, like I said, $50,000 freaking refrigeration unit in this room, they only had three minutes to film in there because by that time, the air got warm from all the light and the breath was taken, it was not there anymore. There's no CGI here, folks. We had to do it this way, so they would have to reset everything and do it three minutes at a time. Reagan asked Karis to loosen the straps. And this is such a powerful scene. One, Karis isn't giving in. He stops Reagan and says they need to introduce themselves. Once he says his name, she comes out with calling herself not Pazuzu, but the devil himself. And then he tells her to make the straps disappear herself. To which she responds with one of the titles of my favorite CDs from the early 90s. She says that would be too vulgar a display of power at this stage. (laughs) Did any of you recognize that name? Come on. No. Oh, it's it's Pantera's album from 1992. Good lord. <laughs> You'd have to do your own exorcism to get me to listen to Pantera. <laughs> yeah. All right. What do you guys feel about this scene? I think it's a very nice cat and mouse between these two. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's nicely done. And there's still a bit of ambiguity about it with, a, uh, with Kara's person not yet convinced. Or at least wanting to hope it is still just some kind of mental illness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's an interesting scene. Again, I love how this, from here on out, this movie becomes a, a battle of attrition where Pazuzu and company are doing everything they can to keep misdirecting and just fucking with these priests and this and this mother. Yeah, Pazuzu says the girl is in here with us, as is his mother. When Karis tests her with his mother's maiden name, she responds by throwing up the famous pea soup in this scene. Funny bit of trivia, Jason Miller was expecting the bit of pea soup to come at him, but it wasn't supposed to land on his face. It was supposed to land on his chest. So when we see him hunker back and look pissed, he most certainly was. Does anybody like pea soup, though? That's the, the I love theory. it. I oh, love it. Yeah. I, I can't get past the texture. I just, oh, I look man. at it like something I'd feed my kids. Oh, it's delicious if made right. But man, it just breaks your heart seeing this girl do this kind of stuff. And Freakin makes it even more powerful by cutting to some innocent looking pictures of kids and animals on a wall in the basement. Which, given the reveal near the beginning, we can determine these were probably done by Reagan. You definitely have to make that insinuation. She's terrible at drawing for her age. <laughs> <laughs> She'd be way better at 12. Wow, look at the critic over here. The art critic. I'm, I'm thinking about my child's drawings, and they're, they're, they're so much better, you know. Uh, oh, Nick's not going to give it a good score because of the poor drawing. Yeah. Father Karras looks through more pictures, and as Chris irons his shirt, 
he tells her that Reagan isn't claiming to be a demon. She's claiming to be the devil himself. And this kind of took me aback when I was a kid. was like, oh, wow. Like, she's not just a demon. She's the devil. This is great because this also plays into the war, like a psychological warfare where Father Karras is like, yeah, I've seen this all the time where, where people think they're Napoleon. They go to the biggest extreme because it's a form of psychosis. Yep. So, like, this doesn't necessarily guarantee that she's possessed. I mean, the, the signs are there otherwise, but this is a this is a good misdirect out of The Devil's Playbook, which would be a great sequel title for The Devil's Advocate. It'd be a better sequel than Believe. Chris is convinced that Thing isn't her daughter, and she's trying her best to convince Karis that an exorcism would do her a lot of good. She also reveals that she knew his mother passed recently, but Reagan doesn't. This is what I think convinces Karis to finally go through with the exorcism. Yeah, yeah, and I, uh... Uh, strategically a bad call on Pazuzu's part. Yeah, right? <laughs> we see Karis breaking bread. Right before Friedkin gives us a close-up of Blair as Mercedes McCambridge says that famous line, what a beautiful day for an exorcism. She says that doing so would bring Karis and her closer together. And Friedkin has this thing I noticed in my sound system of constantly keeping us on edge by inserting sound effects of wheezing and evil breathing together with the filming inside this freezer makes for a very uncomfortable set of minutes. I didn't even notice that. Like, I'm listening on my sound system. I'm like, holy shit. Every time he's in here, there's not a quiet moment. We're just hearing constant wheezing. Yeah, and when you think of wheezing, you think of anxiety and Uh panic attacks which are what you as a mother or as a parent would be feeling in this instance. She closes a drawer, and Karis tells her to do it again as she speaks in Latin. She says she plans on staying in Reagan until she rots. As Karis pulls out what he claims is holy water and throws it on her, and she screams that it burns as she writhes in pain and shows even more cuts and sores. Karis goes back to Chris, gets a glass of scotch, and tells her the holy water he sprayed on her was actually tap water, negating any need for an exorcism. Why are they throwing this many red herrings? We know that this girl needs it. Why is she claiming that this is holy water when it's not? Uh, I, I, this was weird to me. I think Karis is trying to apply the scientific method. Okay. He's trying. He's not immediately assuming this thing was some kind of get out. And she's going along with it. She's going along with it as well, so... uh. Yeah, I'm, I'm impressed that he only has one scotch. <laughs> she doesn't even have any eyes. He's like, no, I'll take it straight. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, anyway, like, give me the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Karis plays the Latin Reagan had spoken, and the speech expert says it's not Latin at all. It's actually English, backwards. Well, no, she says some Latin. Some and Latin? There's, there's a, yeah, I, yeah, I think it's kind of like, a, the sort of thing is, if you're a Catholic priest, you're going to know Latin. It's one of the things you sort of, um, one of my first job after university is I literally ended up working for the um, Archdiocese, where I'm from. I like this clerical job entering in birth and death records from the parish records for this big historical database they were building. And um, a thing I saw happen more than once is a um, staff there, like priests there, speaking with counterparts in other countries who didn't have English, but corresponding in Latin with them. So, um yeah, he, he'd recognize any Latin, but um, the, the, the backward talk, he, he wouldn't know because... Not recognizable. No, not recognizable. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also embedded because Latin translations of the Bible, that goes all the way back to the Roman Empire. It wasn't until the Reformation where you started to get other languages. So depending on what clergy you belong to or where you're located, translating the Bible from Latin 
is surprisingly more common than you think. Before anyone asks, are any of us overly religious? I think we need to to Um, ask the question. No, I, I was raised Catholic, obviously. Um, I, I say obviously because my name is practically Seamus McPatus. <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I, my, my name couldn't be any more o- obvious uh, in sort of marking me out as somebody of Irish Catholic stock. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm, I'm not... I, I, I was when I read the book originally. I think when I read the book when I was about 15, I was definitely all in. Now I think last would be a fair description. We then get a scene that Nightmare 3 completely ripped off as Reagan's stomach is revealed to have help me form right on it. At least it doesn't say come and get her, bitch. That's true. (laughs) Karis goes to the church and says he's convinced that this is a genuine possession, and it is suggested that he take another priest with him, and the church suggests Father Marin. It's revealed that Marin was actually involved in an exorcism that lasted for months and damn near killed him. And we should mention, you know, when Blatty wrote the original book, it was actually based on an actual exorcism, right, Mick? Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's purportedly based on an incident that happened in 1949 in, in Maryland, uh, and it was a boy. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what to make of any of that. I'm not either, but supposedly the boy grew up to work for NASA. He just died probably a couple years ago, two, three years ago. Um, but he didn't want any fame from this movie. He, didn't, he knew that it was supposedly about him, but he didn't take any fame, any interviews, or anything. He was an African-American boy. And uh, it's just an interesting story that's just kind of taken on a lore of itself. But yeah, he worked for NASA, of all things, before he died. So he made something of himself. Marin is seen walking as Reagan's face appears on screen, giving us indications that their paths will indeed cross. Oh, God, man. I got to tell you, poor Linda Blair. You know, nowadays they would CGI these eyes, but she had to wear these contacts constantly. And she said later on that they fucking hurt. Yeah. Marin, painful. Marin shows up at Chris's house. Again, we mentioned the poster earlier. Fucking amazing shot there. And it doesn't take long for Reagan to recognize his presence. Marin says the demon will lie to confuse them and mix lies with truth to attack them psychologically. They go in as non-CGI frost breath is emitted from Marin and Karis. And yep, they, they actually froze this rum, basically. Oh. My God, I could not fucking imagine. Imagine how Vancito is. He goes from being in 100 degree, 130 degree heat to being in this fucking refrigerated room. He's Scandinavian. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this man Nobody plays, likes it. This man plays chess with death. I don't think anything scares him. <laughs> Marin sprays Reagan with actual holy water. As more pea soup is spit, her tongue goes 100 miles an hour, and Marin and Karis read the exorcism, and Reagan tells Karis that your mother sucks cocks in hell. Again, just hearing this kid just emit these fucking phrases. Yeah. I understand this film was shown on TV, on American TV in the 70s, and uh, have you seen the TV movie version? I have not, no. How do they handle, I mean, I'm assuming things like the crucifix they just cut, but like, do they change this line? I mean, God, I would imagine so. I would imagine Uh, they just cut this line completely out, actually, and not even just change it. How could you change this to something that you could see here on TV in the 70s? Have you seen the TV edits for the Depied? I mean, they they do some wonders with that. I mean, it's it's ironically hilarious, but between that and snakes on a plane, I think they could find a way to make it work as bad as it would be. It was funny because somebody asked her behind the scenes, I believe it was Jason Miller. Does it, or somebody, maybe it was a somebody interviewing Linda Blair. They asked her, how did it feel saying all those bad words on screen? And she just replied, it wasn't me, it was Reagan. Just a very, very mature actress for the age that she was. 
The bed is rapidly shaking as Reagan screams, and the bed then floats. And Freakin is doing great things with lights here, too, and we, we see Kara still doubting himself. I love how Freakin used lights. You know, we talked about sound, but he wanted he didn't want any light that came in without us knowing where it came from. So we're seeing where all the light is emitting from. Yep. You you now have a source. And again, this yeah. is great tier design work. I mean, this house was built, basically. If it's going to stay like this, well, you have to see the sequels to learn about that. Funny story with the third one. But this, this all this stuff is great. Like, this is what the movie is builds up to. And if it didn't deliver, I don't think the movie would have the staying power that it does, ultimately. I mean, you can't have a movie called The Exorcist and have it be done in two minutes. Yeah. This is the third act of the movie, and it, it's, a, it's as much of a battle as Jedi fighting each other with lightsabers. Reagan starts laughing as Marin yells that he casts her out, and we get the famous twisting of the head, which, man, you know, nowadays you look at it, it looks kind of silly, but back then, this would have thrown you completely off, and I believe that it actually scared audiences back then. Uh, apparently, but it's been so parodied. Yeah. You know, before I'd seen this film, I think I'd seen that bit parodied, like, so many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunate that when you have a movie that that's this embedded in pop culture, I imagine people watching this for the first time and laughing. You know, it's unfortunate, but it's it's just the reality of the world we live in. Because I know people who saw this for the first time and are like, "Oh, I didn't find that movie scary at all." I'm like, "No, I, I understand that response, but the O word gets thrown around a lot, and this is one of those times. Every time I hear that, I want to to go back to this joke. Keep overrated out of your fucking mouth when you talk about this movie." Yeah, by the time most people saw this too, I mean, yeah, it made a lot of money in theaters, but you know, it'd been parodied on Saturday Night Live countless times. Oh, that know. was the first one because that was like the first season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. With, uh, was it Richard Pryor? It was, yeah. And I said, you know, there's Repossessed, which is a terrible fucking movie. When I was a teenager, I, I had that on tape. I watched it constantly. That does have it does have one really funny scene with the when she's making the pea soup and she turns around yeah. and you hear you hear the music. Yeah. What, oh, it's scary movie too. The line is when when she does the head turn. James Woods goes, "Oh fuck this," and he leaves. <laughs> Reagan yells to Karis that he left his mom alone to die. She raises above the bed, and we get the famous quote, The power of Christ compels you, as it's yelled 14 times. And holy water just cuts her legs, and she is lowered. Reagan then attacks Karis as Marin is toppled, and our heroes just don't look so effective as we get a brilliant shot of Reagan raising her hands in shadows and the statue Pazuzu being in the background. That fucking shot is amazing. It was one of the first shots I remember seeing and I was, I I remember seeing it and I was just like, there's no freaking devil in that. There's no little girl in that picture, but that actually is Reagan with her arms outstretched. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a beautiful shot and very effective and strange. Otherworldly, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is where the line between steadfast reality and dream logic. Yeah. Uh, this is the one time I feel like Friedkin is actually evoking other horror filmmakers. You know, I think a lot of a lot of the Italian horror I can see in this scene, it's not a problem whatsoever, but it's the one time where I'm like, all right, this definitely, it's playing off stuff we've seen before as far as some of the compositing and imagery. Karis asks to rest before they start again, and they leave the room, and Friedkin has a long shot of the door as Karis once again enters and wipes Reagan's face down, this, this, by the way, is my favorite scene in the movie. Is it? Um, where it's the two of them just sitting on the stairway. They're both just exhausted. Yeah. Um, and I, I love how in the original cut, they don't say anything to each other. I like the conversation in the in the extended cut 
But I think it's more powerful that they're just they're just so beaten down by this. I agree. Uh, like exorcisms are not easy for people to do, and also you have to get approval to even do an exorcism. Like it's a long process. So I've learned, as you have said, I'm not overly religious. You know, I do believe something happens to you when you die, but who am I to tell you what to believe? Uh, but I love that they're just they're just wiped out and can't even muster up the words to express how they're feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm beginning to. Uh... The extended cut, I, th- I think it's less effective. It's they just talk effective. about their next plan of attack, right? Yeah, it's much more effective for us to show them shattered than it is even talking. So uh, it says um, he's doing this to make us believe that our faith means nothing. Like, he tries to justify the purpose of this when I think that's already been put on display. Karis once again enters the room and wipes Reagan's face down as she speaks in her mother's voice, even calling Karis Demi. He takes her heartbeat, and he predicts that she will go into a coma if they wait much longer. Karis leaves in duress as Marin walks over to her and pulls out a cross as well as some holy water. He pours some holy water on her, kneels down, and gives another sermon at her bedside. Meanwhile, Karis tells Chris that Reagan is not going to die. He walks upstairs as Kinderman shows up to the door. Karis walks in and sees Marin dead. Again! These deaths that freaking refuses to show, it is so effective because we don't know what the hell this girl did to this dude. You don't know whatsoever, and I'm glad the movie doesn't feel the need to explain it. It is shock value in a non-exploitative way because there's no way you could predict this. And, and I think it works because of what we get with Father Karras later on, momentarily. You couldn't kill both of them off screen, but you also, I don't think, could have killed them both on screen. There had to be some kind of a compromise, and it's more powerful that the outsider, you know, you think he's the expert based on him opening the movie, and he's the one that gets taken out first, so it raises the stakes. It's more compelling to kill off the more person you would have the most confidence in quicker. It's also a good tactic for never in the audience. You know, you remove the most confident person from the equation. Father Karras tries reviving Father Marin as Pazuzu looks on. This pushes Karras over the edge as he looks at Reagan and begs her to take him. He grabs her, and in the very next shot, almost Bruce Banner-like, we see his eyes turn yellow. What I love about this is Freakin is quick to include sounds of Reagan crying in her own voice, so we know that innocence has once again been regained. Yep, but it's like a zombie virus that gets transferred. It's a nice moment. You know the thing to talk about when you're in screenwriting? that your character should make decisions, that they should seem more proactive, yeah. And I, I just like it, that I just like the way that woman played where you can just see in that instant that Karras has realized that this is what he's going to do, that he's yes. going yeah. to have control of himself for just long enough to hurl himself out that window. And I, I love that moment. Yep. Karras gets the demon inside him, and as the demon tries reaching for her in a POV shot, we see Karras sacrifice himself to save Reagan and everyone around him by jumping out the window and taking a topple down the very stairs that Burke did earlier. This is what puts the movie over the edge for me as far as idiosyncrasies, in that this character who has lost his faith regains it to the point where he's willing to give up his life for someone else. He saw good in the world again and a reason to live regardless of whether or not it's actually him who carries on existence. Um, so I think this is very important, and I don't think the movie would, would work without this sacrifice. Yeah, I think it would be a lesser movie if he just managed to sort of expel the demon without any greater cost to himself. The very next shot is of Reagan on the floor crying for her mom and Kinderman poking around outside. We see Karis' mentor see him fallen and bloody as cops arrive from all over, 
And apparently, this is one of the ways that Friedkin got emotion out of people. He slapped the hell out of them because I guess he did this to this Father Dyer actor who really didn't take too kindly to it, but he wanted to get more emotion out of him, and I guess that's one way to do it. Whatever works. I mean, yeah. Coop, this is the Shelley Duvall style. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, we talked about that. We once again see a shot of the stairs in the morning as Sharon packs up and shows Chris something else she found in Reagan's room, the pendant that we saw earlier, right, Mick? Yep, yep. Chris tells Father Dyer that Reagan doesn't remember any of what has happened. As she gives him the pendant and drives off, Dyer once again walks to the steps as credits roll on The Exorcist. What do you guys feel about Reagan pretty much not remembering a thing of what happened? I like that because it's the it's the preservation of innocence. So ultimately, if you believe in God, you can read it as he's absolving her of sin, whether it was her fault or not. So I think it's I think it's a positive way to end the movie because the the PTSD is going to live on with the mother. So that's never going to go away, and she's still a child. So I, you know, th- and this could have been really schmaltzy. This could have been the Spielberg level where you just want to vomit, but it works. Yeah, it's nice he's trained. All right, that does it for The Exorcist. Scale of 1 to 10, what do we give The Exorcist? Mick, you go ahead and go, sir. I'm going to go with a 9. I'm kind of stingy about giving Phil Marsh to things uh, at the minute. But, yeah, no, I think there's one or two uh, things that hold me off. Actually, mostly it's the use of music, but not that it isn't effective, but just that, especially the ending there. We've got the slightly, slightly dated score coming in, and then we go back to the excerpt from Tubular Bells again. Uh, it's a couple of little things like that. I mean, mostly I love this film. I think probably the thing is I admire this more than I love it. I think that's probably the thing. I could pick up one or two things and say, well, that's why I'm not giving it full marks. But, um, you know, it's an important film. Uh, I can appreciate the enormous skill with which, you know, Fried can apply himself and which all the performers and crew brought to this film as well. I think probably because it is a horror film, but that's also kind of dealing with deeper subject matter. And I'm not entirely sure how I'm meant to feel by the end of it. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I, I can give a rave, but it's all slightly qualified by the fact that I'm still not sure how I'm supposed to feel by the end of it, other than just relief. But I'm not sure how to feel about the bigger questions in it, if that makes sense. And also, I suppose, um, I, I think when I'm thinking about the film The Exorcist, I'm also going to have to be thinking about my um, deeply ambivalent current thoughts about Catholicism and organized religion. Wow, so a very compromised nine. That's interesting. Matt, what about you, sir? I'm close with Mick. Garrett, you know this. We've been doing this for 10 years. I seldom give tens. And look, this is as close as I can get, but ultimately I have to reserve tens for movies I I other love with a my own religious fervor or something that I think is, is damn near flawless. This hits the second point, but I got to be honest, as great as this movie is, I'm not one of those people who watches this every year. I've seen it plenty of times. It's a brilliant movie. It's a master stroke, but it's not even my favorite movie in this franchise. So I, I do kind of have to put that in perspective, but regardless, look, this is for a 50 year old movie. To still have the resonance it does, to still hold up as well as it does, and to be both a family drama with 
genuinely likable characters combined with a horror movie that at the time really pushed the boundaries of what was accepted, I think still deserves to be lauded in every circle you can find. So it's hard for me to poke this movie and find a a, a vibrant flaw. But having said that, I have to reserve tens for movies, like I said earlier, that I watch with regularity or I think are flawless. And, you know, it's it's close on both of those on that second point, but as I alluded to, this is not something I watch every year. And, and for me, that's a big component when I give my personal tens. It's not a ten, but look, it's a nine. I mean, I, I hope you don't crucify me for giving this a nine instead of instead of a ten. Don't take that as any sort of slight. I'm like I'm like uh, the, those Saint Joseph statuettes. I, I only give them out when I feel like I, I am compelled to do so. All right. Well, then I'll be this guy. I'm going to give out my second 10 of the year. I'm going with a 10 on The Exorcist. I feel there's so much about this movie that a horror fan could grow to love. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, you know, it is a movie from 1973, and it does take a different approach in that it is a slow build. And when I say slow, I believe we get about 40, 45 minutes in until we even get hint of Reagan being possessed. That being said, I didn't really feel that because I was deeply invested in these characters. And what Freakin' does so well here, for a movie that's so both literally and figuratively cold, is invest us into this mother and daughter. I think adding a father here would have... I think it was a brilliant move to omit any male involvement until the priests and the doctors get involved because it it just makes it more of a scare fest for these two females to be involved in this film. The performances are flawless. I have no issues at all with any of the performances. The makeup effects are brilliant. Yes, the head twisting we have seen done a hundred times, but it still works in the context of the film. I think the possession scenes are immaculate. And again, you're not going to see a child performance unless you talk about the one me and Matt already covered in Haley Joel Osment, like you see in Linda Blair here. She is tremendous. Hell, she physically sacrificed herself for this movie. So I got to give her props for that as well. This is a tremendous film, a tremendous scare fest, and a slow burn that you won't forget. Again, you will need some patience. It is a two-hour film, but I say it's worth it. It is a 10 out of 10 for me. What about next week? Now, my two counterparts have not seen next week's film. I remember only two things about next week's film i remember james earl jones and i remember locust that is it i hardly remember reagan's involvement in this movie there are so many things that i have put out of my mind because i watched the movie maybe one time and that was it mick what are you expecting next week when you watch the exorcist 2 the heretic for the very first time um i'm expecting a bad john berman movie (laughs) and uh John Berman, uh, he's made he's made one or two films that I think are great, and lots of films that are full of questionable choices. And I, I understand Exorcist Two is the uh, is the most John Bermany of John Bermany's bad John Berman films. So I'm uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, you know, it's a film I've read about a lot, so I, I'm looking forward to see if it lives up to its reputation. I've only seen the trailer for it. I'm, I'm not sure whether or not I'll need, I'll be able to watch it by myself or if I'll need company or some, so, some, some form of solace afterwards. Uh. Matt, are you going to be as down as Mick is on the, what you expect next week? I have no goddamn idea. I mean, I'm probably going to watch this with my two close friends, Jack and Daniels, to see how this goes. But look, I am a champion of bad movies. I am the guy who actively seeks movies that are notoriously bad. 
and this is a black spot on my profile because the impression I get and what has steered me away for all these years is that I I have not heard that this is a movie I can watch ironically and laugh at. It's just quote unquote bad bad. You know, because I've read, like, Gene Siskel gave it zero stars and called it, like, the worst movie he'd seen in eight years. You know, Mark Kermode called it the worst movie ever made. I'm like, you know, I really should seek this out, but at the same time, there was, there was nothing calling me to it outside of just it being on that worst of the worst list. And, yeah, John Borman, uh, I like Excalibur, and I like Deliverance. That's fucking it. Actually, no, I, I love Taylor of Panama. I forgot he directed that, so... I don't know what to expect. I I saw a picture of James Earl Jones in this movie, and I thought for sure it was a clip from Conan the Barbarian until I realized it wasn't. And I'm like, oh, you're fucking, oh, you're serious. Yep. Oh, my goodness. That'll be next week. And uh, I hope people are enjoying our Halloween series of podcasts, The Exorcist. Yes, these are being released probably a little after the release of the sequel that we will be reviewing at the end of this retrospective. But we're going to try to get all these in before we actually go see that movie. So we have something to look forward to when we get out of it. Or not look forward to. We will see. But next week, I am really looking forward to talking about The Exorcist 2 Heretic. Boys, thank you for joining me on this movie I've been wanting to talk to for years. It's been a wonderful review, and uh, I look forward to doing this journey with you. And until next week, when we talk about The Exorcist 2 The Heretic... The power of this podcast compels you. Thank you, gentlemen. What harm could there be in his being baptized? A great deal. Those people hate and fear Chechia. Do you want to expose him to further danger by having him join a religion they equate with evil? Say it. Say it, Mariner, can't you? The work of Satan. It's the work of man! Why can't you accept that? Because my only concern is the eternal soul of that young man. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. You really don't want me to play, huh? No, I do. Captain Howdy said no. Join us next week for an entirely new review. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. The show is mine! It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. I like plays. The good ones. Shakespeare. I like Titus Andronicus the best. It's sweet. And if you like this review, please head over to percolatedmedia.net or search your podcast streamer of choice, where we have individual reviews such as Knock at the Cabin, The Black Phone, Megan, as well as additional blockbuster franchises like Avatar, Pirates of the Caribbean series, Stephen King's ongoing collection, and many more.
He has work to do much more. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Did you know that you are talking to an artist? Edited by Garrett. Once the wings have brushed you, you're mine forever. Voiceovers by Adam. Look, your daughter doesn't say she's a demon. She says she's the devil himself. The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. You, you went through a phase where you were watching the top 50 or so on IMDb's top 100. Was it top 100 you were watching? Top 250. I went through that entire list from 1 to 250. I, I, obviously eliminating the ones I had seen. Mm-hmm. But I, that's my goal. And this is in there somewhere. I don't exactly know what its placement is, but I know it's below The Dark Knight Rises and that's horseshit. Yeah, because I guess no one's on my mind if you've read Scorsese's comments that also made me, that made me want to have an exorcism myself. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this was, I guarantee you they're going to use archival footage of them in this new one. Oh. Uh, what, you know, if we get what? that deep, if we get that deep fake Grand Moff Tarkin shit, I am walking out of the theater. Uh. I am telling you this, telling you this right now, because I guarantee they did it with Donald Pleasance in that, which, one of those Halloween movies. Did, yeah. Yeah. I can't tell those fuckers apart. I'm sorry, and I'm also a few beers in, because I watched the Jet game on Sunday. That's a conversation <laughs> for another show. Uh, but, but yeah, I I think he's great. We're seeing Burke act like I'll probably be acting at my wedding next year, <laughs> just drunk and roaming around aimlessly. I'll tell you right now, I'm not performing an exorcism <laughs> uh, at, at your wedding next year, and I better not see the level of projectile vomiting. <laughs> Uh, until the mor- the morning after, I'll give you part of lunch for. But... Mick, you want to come to the wedding? Never mind. Uh, <laughs> he's busy. I, if I could ever get to leave the house ever again, <laughs> you know, I I, that I I so seldom get to leave the house now. So uh, okay. I know. Tell me about it. I asked. I told my husband a year in advance. Hey, I'm going away, and I'm not. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> Burke. Burke acts like a fool. A musical number is interrupted by our first sign that Reagan isn't doing so well as she makes her way down the stairs and pees on the floor, saying that you're going to die up there. I remember seeing this as a kid. It freaked me out. This was the first scene where I was like, what the fuck? 
I, I freaked out at this scene. Two things. I better not see this at your wedding either. <laughs> and number two, I lo- it's unsettling because... The doctor tells Chris that Reagan has a disturbance in the chemical electri- Excuse me. Has a disturbance in the chemical electrical... It's not like any of Freakin's other films, even if we are for the fact that you know, Freakin doesn't do many other horror movies. This he, one has a weird energy. He did The Guardian. He did do The Guardian. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he did, um, uh, what was the one with Ashley Judd and Harry Connick Jr.? Bu- oh, uh, Harry Connick Jr. I, I know he did Bug with, uh, yeah. with Michael Shannon. Harry Connick Jr. is the, the, boy, the crazy boyfriend in that. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, that movie was actually really good. It's one of my favorites. I, um, I love that movie. I definitely recommend checking that out because it, it sadly it kind of came and went. Yeah. Because, you know, Freakin's career, I, I think Sorcerer, you know, because it was such a bomb, uh, did a lot of damage to his reputation. But, you know, like I said, if you've never seen To Live and Die in L.A., that's definitely one to check out. You know, I think that movie and Manhunter are why William Peterson got CSI. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like the first movie I remember seeing Willem Dafoe in and being like, this guy's fucking awesome. And he did that movie with, um, what was the one with McConaughey? Uh-huh. Oh, Killer Joe? Joe? Killer Joe, yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a weird fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah. Have you ever seen his, uh, um, if you remember, the 80s Twilight Zone revival? Yes. Yeah. He did the uh, Nightcrawlers episode, which he is did. really interesting. He did. He did. He also did a very weird Tales from the Crypt, the one with the tattoo. I remember it was a season opener. And oh, guy, that's right. He did a tattoo. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. Wait, that's a show we're, uh, we're going to do on Patreon somehow. I would love to. Because, um, by the way, for those of you who don't know, Arnold Schwarzenegger directed an episode of Tales of the Crypt. He did. So did Tom Hanks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. What was the what was the one he... Oh, it was um, On a Dead Man's Chest, I think is what it was called. Yep. Uh, yeah. Where like, the tattoo has a life of its own. Yes. But, but the funny thing is that the, the heavy metal band in that episode is called Exorcist. Yep. <laughs> um, I don't think there's anyone... There's no big stars in that one, though, because... Mm. Um, you know, most episodes have at, at least someone that you recognize. Not that one. Uh, not to get too off track, but yeah, I don't. I also don't think they did an Exorcist episode. No. Killerman ends this scene the most. It's like a zombie virus that gets transferred. It's a nice moment. Karis gets the um, demon inside him. Oh, go ahead, Matt. I'm sorry. No, that was Mech. Okay. Yeah. No, it's a. Um, it's you. You know the thing to talk about when you're. And uh, I look forward to doing this journey with you. And until next week, when we talk about The Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Oh, my God, I forgot my line. Hold on. Um, Okay. The power of this podcast compels you. Thank you, gentlemen.